0: If you have your Bibles, turn to the, and it will sound kind of weird, the book of Matthew. There are other books in the Bible other than the book of Luke. We've been studying Luke for about six months, but we're taking a little break to uh, look at this theme of a beautiful life. And so I'm reading from the book of Matthew, and I want to entitle this message, Shattered Beauty. And uh, we'll read from Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 24. Here is the wisdom of the master. No one can serve two masters. You'll either end up hating the one and loving the other or being devoted to the one and despising the other. There's a polarizing effect uh, when you are serving two masters. You can't serve, now I get specific, God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. One of the ways you'll know that you're serving two masters is that your life is characterized by worry. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or about your body, what you're going to wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds, birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or stir away in barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? You may take away a couple of hours, but you're not going to add hours. And why do you worry about clothes? See the flowers of the, how, the, how they grow? Uh, they don't labor or spin, and yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all of his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, uh, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So, once again, I'm going to tell you, don't worry saying, what are we going to eat? and What are we going to drink? And what are we going to wear? The pagans, those people who don't know God, the worldlings, they run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And the core concept of righteousness in the Bible is right-relatedness. Seek the kingdom of God and the right-relatedness that comes with it, and all these other things are going to be given to you as well. Things will fall into place. Therefore, once again, I say, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Yeah, pray with me. Father, let this word be your word. Let it come alive, anointed with your authority. We don't trust in eloquence or anything of the sort. And we're not here for entertainment. We're here, Lord, to hear your word, to be confronted by your word, to be transformed by your word. And, Lord, only you can do that. So, Holy Spirit, take control. Have your way. Apply this word to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Jesus says, don't worry. And like a lot of Jesus' teaching, this can sound, does it not, uh, somewhat unrealistic, somewhat idealistic, somewhat impractical, maybe even Pollyanna-ish. What do you mean, don't worry? Is that even possible, to live a life that's free of worry? Uh, It just seems like it's uh, a teaching that applies to some other planet other than ours. I mean, come on, get real. Uh, Someone is in the congregation here this morning, I bet, who three months ago you lost your job, and and so for the last two months you haven't been able to pay rent, and tomorrow you're going to get an eviction notice, and you got a newborn baby, and you're not supposed to worry. Or somebody here is 64 years old and you never thought you'd retire because you don't like the idea of retirement, but now your body is breaking down and it looks like you're going to have to retire, but you haven't put aside a penny uh, for retirement. And you're not supposed to worry about that? And even those of us who aren't in those sorts of extreme circumstances, if unless you're incredibly wealthy, it seems pretty normal to worry about uh, your housing and your food and your shelter. And if you are incredibly wealthy, wealthy, you're going to be worrying about other things. It seems like worry is such a normal, quote-unquote, part of our life that, that this teaching of Jesus just seems radically impractical, idealistic, unattainable. Is it possible to have a life? No, no, Jesus isn't saying don't ever think about those things, but he is saying that there's a kind of life where we're not going to be worried about those things. Is that really possible? It's important right at the start that we understand that in all of Jesus' teachings, he's not so much giving us little ethical rules we're supposed to just tack on to our life, leaving the rest of our life unchanged. A lot of people read the teachings of Jesus as though, uh, you know, he was giving us sort of Jesus' rule book that we consult in the right circumstances to look up how we're supposed to behave. And I think that's really a misunderstanding of Jesus' teaching. Uh, You know, when Jesus says, love your enemies, that sounds so impractical, so unrealistic, so Pollyanna-ish. Uh, And it is if you're taking it as a little ethical rule that you're supposed to consult when you're facing an enemy. You're saying that when someone breaks into your house and is going to kill you and your family, that you're supposed to do good to them and love them like Jesus said. But see, Jesus isn't giving us little ethical rules that we're supposed to consult only when we're in certain circumstances. When we do that, we misunderstand the teaching and it becomes unrealistic and impractical. What Jesus is doing in all of his teachings, whether we're talking about loving our enemies or whether we're talking about the teaching that we're not to worry, is he is inviting us in on a different way of doing life, a different lifestyle, a different life orientation. If you try to apply the teaching to love your enemies when all of the rest of your life, you're not cultivating an attitude that is conducive to that, it will be in, totally impossible for you to love your enemy when, when it really counts to do that. And if you're living a life that is under constant stress, a lifestyle that has got all those pressure on it and whatnot, then the teaching about not worrying, it comes across like like that Bobby McFerrin song in the 80s, you know, the, don't worry, be happy. It's like, get real. That's, that's just totally unrealistic. But Jesus isn't giving us a little Bobby McFerrin you know, sarcastic teaching. He's giving us an invitation to live a different kind of life, a radically different kind of life, a kingdom life, what he calls the kingdom of God. And this is what we're uh, uh, calling the beautiful life. Because if we cultivate this kingdom life uh, 24-7, then we'll find that our life begins to take on a kind of beautiful dimension it otherwise wouldn't have. So Let's talk about the beautiful life. If you were here last week, what you heard was this. To understand the beautiful life, we need to understand what beauty is. And beauty, after a little discussion, we decided Jonathan Edwards had it right when he said that beauty is, is a pleasing, harmonious relationship. As, the most fundamental thing you could say about beauty, and the, the minimalistic definition of beauty, is that it's a pleasing, harmonious relationship. So, a beautiful life is a life that's characterized. By beautiful, pleasing relationships. More specifically, our relationship with God is harmonious and pleasing. Our relationship with ourselves is harmonious and pleasing. And therefore, our relationship with others, all others, will be harmonious and pleasing. And therefore, our relationship to creation, since that was the first job description God gave us to take care of creation, that will be harmonious and pleasing. The beautiful life, the kingdom life, is a life that is characterized by pleasing, harmonious relationships. That is the dome in which God is king, the king dome, the king's domain. The opposite of that is an ugly life. And that is a life that's devoid of pleasing, harmonious relations. A life that's devoid of harmony. A life that is fragmented. A life that doesn't have cohesion to it. This is a life that's lived outside of the dome in which God is king. And the goal of God is to take us from our fragmented, uh, uh, relation, our fragmented lives that are characterized by uh, incongruent relations and transition it into a life in which he is king and therefore our life is characterized by harmonious, pleasing relations. You can think of it this way. Here's a scene. That scene isn't particularly beautiful, is it? Because it's fragmented. It's like a stained glass window. You can see how it could be beautiful, but there's a lot of things in this painting that shouldn't be there. Things that are supposed to be connected aren't connected because there's these stupid lines that are dividing them. This is a fractured, fragmented uh, scene. Here's another scene. Uh, the same scene, and yet it's a little bit more beautiful because it, it's got more harmony. The re- things that are supposed to be related are related. You've got less of those intrusive breaks, those fragmentation uh, things that are, are keeping things apart when they ought to be related. And here is the right picture of the scene, and that is beautiful. And the reason it's, be- it's beautiful is because there's cohesiveness to it. There's, there's wholeness to it. Things that are supposed to be related are related. And it's the relationship of colors and forms and shapes that is pleasing and beautiful. God wants to take our lives from being a lives that look more like the first scene and transition them to being lives that look more like this scene, where everything that's supposed to be related is related in the way that it's supposed to be related. But if we're honest with ourselves, we'll have to admit that our lives, our lives look m- more like scene number one and scene number two than they do scene number three. And the solution to this, Jesus is, 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 uh, is giving us here is to reorientate our lives in a way that's going to be conducive to bringing about right relationships with God, and therefore with ourselves, and therefore with other people, and therefore with the entire creation. But we have to start, as AA and every other support group will tell you, you have to start by acknowledging that there's a problem. There is a problem. Our lives are fragmented. Evidence of that is that, among other things, we're stressed out. See if you can't relate to uh, the testimony of these very honest people from Woodland Hills Church. Let's roll the tape.
1: My name is Deanne Leone, and uh, I have uh, six children. My name is Alex Santos. Hi, my name is Jennifer Cad. My name is Linda Peterson, and this is my son, Cijo. Cijo is in 10th grade at Concordia Academy. The past couple of weeks I've worked probably 95 hours. If I'm not out of town for work, I'm working a 50-hour work week. I had my mom's 60th birthday party that I was planning and then trying to celebrate. I had a friend in from out of town that I haven't seen for 10 years. We have kids and after-school activities on any given day of the week. I try to make food in my house, to clean the house, try to do my full-time job, try to do my ministry. He is involved in soccer currently, basketball next season and in the spring. Um, he has track. Trying to answer messages on my personal cell phone, my home cell phone, my work cell phone people can't get a hold of me directly they end up leaving messages because I'm too busy to even answer my cell phones and then I've got my work email and then two home emails and I can't seem to answer those in a timely manner. Finding time for my boyfriend, um, finding time to work out. Always something that going on that is stressful and I have to handle stress I got four kids you can see here on Thursdays I'm in my car for six hours sometimes games are right after school so I have to try to leave work early I work full time as a nurse then I pick the next group of children up and then I bring one to where he's going and then I bring the other ones to their place and then I go pick up the other child from where he was going and I haven't been able to get to my small group for three weeks and then on top of that I have all these different relationships that provide me with support that takes time just to meet with each person and stay connected that way and I come home at 6:30, and if I had a really good day that means I put a meal into a crock pot because if I go out to eat of course then I'm feeling guilty about that I'm serving my children you know the McDonald's but I can forget sometimes that I'm a Christian or I forget that God exists because <laughs> I get into the human so much stress and anxiety Yeah, they come home and they're, they're crabby and they're tired because they did all this really fun stuff and I asked them to do simple things like pick up their clothes or help me clean up the dishes and they'll say, but I was so busy and I'm so exhausted and I think but that was your fun part of your day. Keeping God at the center of my life has been a huge struggle. As a family we just don't get the time together that we'd like to see. Um, our daughter is in her second year of college and trying to fit her schedule in with our schedule Uh, so that we can all get together is hard. I don't have time for my friends. I don't have time for myself. And I hardly have time for me and God.
0: I can't relate. What's what's wrong with these people? I think we can all relate. Uh, Life is crazy. It, it, It gets absolutely insane sometimes, doesn't it? Uh, It's like, do do you ever feel like your life uh, is just controlled by a a need-to-do, got-to-do, have-to-do list? Very little of a want-to-do, but... There's so many obligations, responsibilities. Does anyone else here feel like you're constantly letting people down because you just can't? There's so many things you need to be doing and, and you just don't have enough time for them and people are like mad at you and, and you live in this constant state of, of sort of quasi-guilt and, and, and with work and with church, with ministry, with friends and family, with emails. I'm starting to hate emails. So it's like there's... It's, it's an endless thing. Whoever invented email, it's, it's like, it's crazy. I so relate to this. You know, I got three emails and I can't respond, and, and uh, cell phones, and, and it's just an endless— Our lives look like this. Here's a little illustration. You can find this illustration in uh, Randy Frazee's book, Making Space for Life. We have it back in our, our ministry uh, bookstore, um, and a lot of people are reading this book as we're going through this series. It's a very good book. Uh, Although I, I used this illustration about three years ago, and I think that was before the book was written, so I'm thinking maybe he borrowed it from me. But anyways, who cares? It's all kingdom property. We're not. Uh, so he, here's, here's, here's our life. Let's See if you can relate to this. This is a person. Uh, Scott said I should call this person Pat so that both men and women can relate to my illustration. No, <laughs> what? I don't know. If you're not laughing, it's because you didn't watch Saturday Night Live in the 90s. It's time for androgyny. Here's Pat. So this is Pat. Pat is stressed like the rest of us. All right, this is Pat's stressed outness. Can you see it? Now, let's just kind of diagram. What? It looks androgynous enough, doesn't it? Uh, Okay, so Pat, like the rest of us, has got all these different things on Pat's place. So you've got work. Pat has to spend a good chunk of time on work, maybe 40, maybe 50, maybe 60, maybe 70 hours a week, but that takes a good chunk of Pat's life. Pat also has a a spouse, um, and uh, the spouse uh, needs time. The marriage needs time. Every marriage needs quality time together, so that takes up a chunk of time. Pat has children. And uh, you need quality time with your kids, time just to, you know, be together, time to do homework, and those sorts of things. But there's also all these extracurricular activities. And of course, we Americans don't want to have our kids miss out on any possible uh, activity. I mean, we just might have a world-class pianist in our house, but you won't know that unless you give them in piano lessons. But the same is also true of trumpet and violin and drums. So uh, you take them to everything. So you've got piano lessons uh, for Johnny, and you've got hockey for Bill, and, and, and Carlos needs to go to gymnastics, and, and Betty has got four kids has four kids, uh, and you've got to go to chess club, and you've got to go to badminton and tennis, and then you, after tennis, you've got to run them over to their, their debate team. and So there's all sorts of kid activities, of course, and that's just normal and good stuff that Pat has to do. Now, Pat also wants to have some time for exercise, and of course, there's church. Uh, Pat's a Christian, so of course, never wants to miss out on one of our wonderful sermons, or worship That time. So there's church service, and then there's also small group time that Pat likes to be a part of, and there's also, loves to help out in, in, in helping hands. And lately, because we've been running short, Pat's beginning to think that I've got to help out in children's ministry, so there's a, a chunk of time there. So there's more things that are on Pat's list. Then, of course, Pat wants to exercise once in a while. One wants to stay healthy, so that takes a little bit of a chunk of time. And now Pat, of course, wants to have downtime. We all need downtime. Time to kick back. Just watch the, uh, the television. So there's Lost. One wants to watch Lost. Uh, Wednesday nights, best show on television. Um, and that, by the way, I have a theory about what's going on there, but I can't share it right now. There's Lost and 24. You've got to get your 24 in there. And, and then there's uh, Grey's Anatomy. But of course, that one's got a question mark because Grey's Anatomy is getting really slimy these days. So Pat's thinking about giving up on that one. All right. <laughs> Yeah, he's just you know I'm just saying. Uh, and then there's uh, of course that new series nine that you want to make sure you watch. That's really good. And and brothers and sisters looks is looking kind of interesting and vanished. So just a little bit of TV. Come on, uh, they works so hard. And then of course there's 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 things to do. Once to have some prayer time. You got to have prayer time and devotion time. And then there's that gender specific uh, Bible study. Uh, the 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 yeah the gender specific Bible study. But Pat hasn't been, hasn't been able to go to that for three weeks because Pat's so busy. Uh, then of course you got to do chores around the house. The garage needs fixing, and, and the dishwasher is leaking, and the side of the house needs painting, and uh, the carpet needs vacuuming, and you got to pay the bills, and you got to call the lawyer, and all the other, just normal life stuff, of course. Whoa, <laughs> hallelujah. slain in the spirit. Pat is so stressed out. Do you see what this does to you? This kind of life will just knock you dead. I mean, it's just, it'll kill you. Slain. Pat's going really nuts. And we haven't even talked about friends. Oh, this would really kill Pat. You got, you, got, you know, Mia wants to have some time and needs to have some time. They've been going Their friendship goes back to high school. And then there's Latifa, and then there's John, and, and there's friends that need time and communication. And that's a good thing. And Pat is just all stressed out. I mean, knock you, dead. This is killing Pat. It's killing the rest of us. Yes. You wonder why this is true. One out of four Americans eats at a fast food restaurant every day. One out of four. In fact, one out of seven eat a dinner in their car every day. Even though fast food, everyone knows, uh, except for Subway, is, uh, can I get a kickback on that one, uh, is is half as healthy for you and twice as expensive, but we're so busy that we got to eat food on the run and TV dinners and all the rest. You know, it's just, Uh, You feel like the proverbial minnow in a flash flood. Life's just overwhelming you. It's coming at you in every kind of direction. And the thing is, we feel, we feel this. It is killing us. It's, 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 uh, we're not meant to live like this. And the symptoms of this are many. Jesus specifies worry, Uh, worry, anxiety, sometimes panic attacks. It's like, like, you know, there's lists running in your heads and your heart starts beating. And, you know, for no particular reason, there's, there's just that stress that's there. Some people experience this as depression. For some people, you experience it more. This is kind of where I'm at, is uh, uh, your, your, your fuse gets a little bit shorter than it used to be. You start to be irritable. The last two months, my life's just been nuts. And, and all for good reason. I mean, good stuff. But I find that I'm, I, I'm more irritable than I normally am. Like, you know, would you please stop chewing that way? This is driving me nuts. Uh, Why, you know, things just start getting to you, and and, and you get irritable. Um, You know, there's, uh, uh, for some people, you experience this death as kind of numbness. You just feel numb. You don't feel anything. You don't feel the presence of God like you used to. You don't feel highs and lows like you used to. There's just kind of a numbness. You feel like you're on autopilot. You're just going through the motion. There's just like you're a mechanism. And, And you don't really feel fully human. Uh, this is, is killing us. The stress is pulling us in every direction. We become fragmented. We become fractured. We're torn apart in different directions. Pulled. And see, the thing about this, this, this chart here is that all of the things Pat has to do, or at least most of the things Pat has to do and people that Pat has to relate to, the only thing they have in common is Pat. There's no cohesiveness here. There's no harmony here. This isn't a beautiful life. This is, this is life like the Scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz where part of is torn out and thrown over there, and part of me is thrown out and thrown over there, and then my, my best time is thrown over there, and you're just torn in all these different directions. A life ruled by have-to's, got-to's, need to need-to-dos, and very little just being alive, being fully alive. Uh, we feel it. It manifests itself in a, in a myriad of different ways. By the way, in that devotional book, there is uh, uh, an illustration of this. And we encourage you to when you're in the flash flood, little minnow, you may not notice it. We get so used to the flash flood we don't even notice it. And it's helpful for you to do your own little pad drawing. What do put yourself in the middle and start drawing little bubbles of the different things that demand time and energy and thought in your life. And begin to get a handle on just how many different directions you're pulled to. Not to come up with a quick fix but rather just to get a handle on it, to see the reality of what is going on. Now, what can we do about this? And we're, I'm not going to give, and no one in this series is going to give, the 19 how-tos and the prescriptions about what you can or can't have in your life and those sorts of things, because all of our lives are different and, 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 and very individual. But we can look at some biblical principles that can guide us to begin to reorientate our lives. What's needed here, I submit to you, is not simply a little tweaking of the system. Like, it might be a good thing for you to say, okay, I'm gonna get rid of Grey's Anatomy and two other shows. That, that, that's good and have s- extra time. But most likely, if your life is rather typical, typical of Americans, uh, what's needed is a, a more fundamental reorientation, a reframing of what your life is about, a reframing that can give you wisdom on moving forward. And as we go into this series uh, in the coming weeks, there'll be more practical suggestions. Uh, what I want to do here for the remainder of this message is talk about four basic truths that can help, really, kind of foundational truths to help us get a grip on what's going on in our life, to begin to reorientate our life. So, number one, I want to encourage everybody here to realize that you and I, to a significant degree, have been brainwashed. We've been brainwashed. We didn't just wake up one morning and say, hey, I think I'll live life like the, 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 the dismembered scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. Hey, I think I'll make my life ridiculously busy. We didn't choose this. We, wait, well, we choose it every day, but the structure itself that makes us feel like we need to live life this way, we inherited this. And there's something that's driving it, something primordial, something foundational that's driving us to these scattered, hazard, stressed out, depressed lives. These lives that are, are not coherent and not rightly related and not beautiful. To a large degree, it's because we've all been brainwashed. There is a matrix. The matrix of the 20th and 21st century is a matrix. The system of lies that leads us to behave, and do, behave like this and do life like this. Every culture's got its own kind of a matrix. A system of lies. Paul calls it the pattern of this world in in Romans chapter 12. Our unique version of the matrix is one that conditions us, programs us to end up doing life this way. We need to get a handle on this. I don't know if you've seen this uh, PBS special or not, but I encourage you to try to get a hold of it if you can. It's called the century of the self. Has anyone here seen that? The century of the self. An incredible documentary. That one and also this, this PBS special called The Corporation. Uh, it, it really is an eye-opening uh, series that lets you know kind of what's going on in the world right now. In the Century of the Self*, they get at one of several components of the matrix that leads us to live life in a scattered, shattered way. Uh, in this documentary, they point out how Freud, Sigmund Freud, uh, really discovered the unconscious. And apart from all of his sort of sexually obsessed theories about the unconscious, what is accurate is that our, most of what goes on in our brain, we're not consciously aware of. There is this thing called the subconscious. What Freud discovered, and which is, is really indisputable now, is that uh, very little of what we do, do we do because of our rational brain. Rather, most of our behavior is motivated by feelings that are associated with unconscious thought processes rather than conscious thought processes. We're far less logical than we might think we are. We think our, we do things for rational reasons, but in fact, we're motivated by forces that are much more foundational than that. So Freud discovers the unconscious. Freud's nephew looked at this, and he went, ching there's a dollar to be made. And so he was the first to take these new kind of uh, uh, psychoanalytic insights and apply them to the area of business, and became very wealthy by selling these insights to advertisers. And what he's basically telling advertisers is this. To sell your product, you, uh, you don't want to be communicating information, really, because information, as often as not, will get a person not to buy your product. Rather, to sell your product, you want to bypass Short circuit, Um, weave around the conscious frontal lobe part of the brain and go right to the subconscious. And, And knowing what we know about the brain, use certain techniques and strategies to get people to feel certain ways because if they feel certain ways without being consciously aware of it, they'll buy your product and they won't really know why. And this became the strategy used by all advertisers and, I might simply add, politicians to control how people feel and therefore how people behave bypass the frontal lobe, rational part of the brain, and get to the subconscious. You, you might want to know that Freud and his nephew and other intellectuals in the 20th century had a real disdain for the stupidity of the masses, the herd, uh, that really are good for, you know, they're not very smart, they're not very rational, you know, they're very manipulatable, and we might as well, might as well use that to our own advantage. It, it's the crowd and what the nephew basically said was this, uh, we want to get the masses, to get them to feel their wishes as though they were essential needs. Everyone has a ton of wishes. If we can find out a way, and they did, find out a way how to get them to file those wishes as though, and feel it as though it was an essential need, well then, then they will buy our products. They'll buy anything that we want them to if we get them to believe it's an essential need. And with that, the goal becomes to reduce the masses to insatiable, perpetual purchasing machines, what we today call the consumer. Insatiable, perpetual purchasing machine. A race of people who are functionally on the level of robots who uh, walk around with the the programmed mantra in their head, I need more, I want more, I got to get more. I need more, I want more, I got to get more. Perpetually hungry, never satisfied, buying, buying, buying. Chasing, chasing things as though they were essential needs, which is exactly what Jesus says the pagans do. And the sad reality is that to a large degree, it works. People feel wishes as though they were essential needs. Here's one piece of evidence for it. Often today, you'll hear people talk about the good old days. We look back on, say, 1900, and it just seems like life was simpler then, and it was, and that people were freer then, and they probably were. And it it seems like people weren't so stressed out financially uh, then, and, uh, and, and, and they were. But here's what's interesting. I came across some research. In fact, I I first found out about it through an article that was entitled, The Happy Days Are Here. Uh, The good old days are now. And what it showed is this. People in the year 2000 had, on average, in the middle class, 25% more discretionary spending funds than they did in 1900. By discretionary, they meant things that weren't essential. Uh, Food, shelter, and clothing. And today we have much more money to be spent on things other than those things than they did in 1900. Statistically speaking, talking about the middle class. Of course, we've got many people who uh, still, all their money goes to to the bare essentials. But talking as a population— There's 25% more discretionary spending now than there was in 1900. And yet, we don't feel that way. That doesn't feel right. It feels like we live uh, paycheck to paycheck. We live on a shoestring, and it feels like everything we purchase we've got to have. Everything feels essential. Why? Because we've been programmed to file wishes as though they were essential needs. It really does feel like we've got to get these things. That's why, despite the fact that we have so much more money that isn't spent on the very essentials on the whole, despite that, in 1900, the average church corps gave uh, 10 to 15% of their income to church and charities, whereas the average American today gives less than 2% to church and charities. And the reason is because we just don't feel like we have any to spare. Everything feels so essential. We're being brainwashed. And there's a multitude of other things we could talk about in the 20th century that contribute to our our minds being conditioned in a way that we feel like we've got to be running life in this hazard kind of way. Just think about some of the inventions that were created in the 20th century and what it's done to to our lives. For example, just to give one example, maybe two. Um, Do you know that when the the radio first became uh, available for public consumption, there were a lot of Christians and some others who really believed that it was of the devil. Now, one of the reasons they believed it was of the devil is because it says in Ephesians 2 that Satan is the principality and power of the air, so using airwaves can't possibly be good. That's a bad reason. Uh, The minute you go over the airway, never mind. I know, it's bizarre. But here's a good reason that some gave, or at least a plausible reason. They're thinking, look at, if we invite this stranger into our room, they're paid to be entertaining and informative, uh, and, and we're not. So this guest is going to start sucking up all the time that we spend together. Realize that in 1900, that if you wanted to be entertained, you had your spouse and kids, basically. invite some friends over. You'd read stories. You'd talk at night. But the, the, the responsibility to keep life interesting was on the part of everybody. Now comes the radio. And, man, the radio is really interesting. So now we're not paying attention to each other. We're paying attention to the radio. Television comes along and it's 10,000 times more entertaining than that. No one can compete with the entertainment and information value of the television. The television is always going to be more interesting than your spouse and your kids. And we invite this guest in on our room and there you have it. You know, it's a, and I'm not preaching against television. I'm just saying we've got to be aware of how, you know, we're being pulled from the center. Add on to this the invention of the automobile and then the airplane. We've got all these travel opportunities, uh, you know, and, and connecting points. Add onto this the internet for crying out loud and email and cell phones. Cell phone. and we're, we're so available now. It's so hard to get private time. And there's sort of a rule I like to dispel right now. There's a, the rule is if someone calls you, you're supposed to stop what you're doing and answer the phone. I have this discussion with my wife all the time. Uh, someone, we're in the middle of a talk or watching a show and the, tele, the phone rings and then we've got to answer it. But see, if someone came up to you and you're talking to your wife and someone comes up and, and barges in and starts talking, you'd say, excuse me, that's rude. So why do we feel it's our responsibility to always answer this stupid cell phone? Amen. Turn it off! Get rid of it! Plus, it, that can't, it can't be healthy to nine times a day, all of a sudden go, whoa, what was that? Oh, it's my cell phone. Uh, you know, <laughs> Added stress to our life. Really? It's like, oh, yeah. Georgia. That, that, that can't be healthy. All these things. The point here is this. We need to wake up to—there is a strategy on the part of the enemy using even well-intentioned people to bombard us on a regular basis, daily basis, sometimes moment-by-moment basis, with things that are not true, that, that often bypass our conscious mind, but impact our subconscious mind that create feelings. You hardly ever really think about a billboard, but it has an impact on you, or commercials, or things that you read and whatnot. It all impacts us that forms our, the the feelings that motivate our behaviors. Uh, People are chasing the American dream, thinking they got to have, they want to have, they've got, they have to have. And all the while, we're calling this the free market. This is the evidence of being free. But I submit to you that if you're in bondage to that, you're not free at all. You've been brainwashed. Wake up to the brainwashing that's going on. The same thing happens in terms of morality. For the last two generations, we're being bombarded by a media that basically sees human beings as nothing more than complex amoebas. And so we're, 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 we're raising up generations of people who have the morality of amoebas. And that's very much what you get on Grey's Anatomy. The basic idea is if, it, if, it's, if, it, if it's breathing and moving and I want it, well, then it's all right for me to have it. And, and we're, we're bombarded with that no one or very very few people thought that way in 1900 but now we've got a whole population and people feel free they're expressing their freedom by having sex with anyone in any place at any time they want to but in fact you're brainwashed you've been conditioned to see yourself and understand your own ethics in terms of an amoeba but it's not true and as we hear about this matrix and the conditioning of our brain I hope it's getting you a little bit angry. Do you really want to be part of the herd? Moving along with the masses. A robot that's programmed to just repeat the mantra over and over again. And you'll need that anger. Get, get, get a righteous anger. You need it if you're going to break out of it. You don't want to be anyone's puppet. You don't want to be controlled. The truth shall set you free. And the truth ain't found on the airwaves or on the television or in most things that you read. The truth is found in the kingdom of God and in Jesus Christ. Keep a hold of that anger. Principle number two listen to your pain. Oh, by the way, keep a hold of that anger. But remember, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers in dark places. If it's got flesh and blood, it's not your enemy. Don't get angry at the human. Get angry at just the control that's happening here. Principle number two whoa, I got to go fast. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it's that late. Um, Principle number two listen to your pain. Listen to your pain. We are in pain. This is not how we're supposed to do life. There's nothing normal about this way of doing life. It's unnatural. And it's death. And the smell of death are the symptoms that I referred to earlier. The perpetual fatigue, the constant tiredness, the sense of emptiness and aloneness or numbness or, 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 or how short your fuse has gotten. Pay attention to that. Notice that something's wrong. The problem is that, that, that we're so busy, we ignore the pain or we medicate the pain. People medicate the pain by pouring themselves into sex or drugs or, or alcohol or some other compulsive behavior. It keeps you going. You don't have time to slow down to pay attention to the pain, but you got to pay attention to the pain. The pain is your friend because pain is there to tell you that something isn't working. Life as you're doing it now isn't working. Pay attention to that. And if you follow it through, you'll find that there's a wisdom that, that the pain can give you. It can begin to show you what is off and wrong and missing so that you can make the necessary adjustments that you need to, to make. Pay attention to the pain. Don't drown it out, run away from it, but rather embrace it, listen to it, and let it teach you. Which leads to my third point, and that is, and most fundamentally, seek first the kingdom of God. As Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and, and all these other things will be added unto you. All these other things he's saying are going to fall in place. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Worry is a sign that the kingdom isn't first. Worry is a sign that, that the righteousness of the kingdom, the right-relatedness of the kingdom, isn't part of our life. Righteousness means right-relatedness with God, ourselves, others, and the creation. And when the kingdom is first, One of the things that begins to happen is our life takes on a peace and a calmness it didn't otherwise have. When Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, he's not saying first chronologically as though first you do the kingdom, which is, of course, all the spiritual stuff. Now let's do family. Now let's do job. Now let's do recreation as though you leave the kingdom because you did it first. He's not speaking chronologically. He's speaking foundationally. What Jesus is saying is this. Make the kingdom the foundation for everything you do. The first that you do whatever else you do. So when you do family, make the kingdom first. When you do friends, make the kingdom first. When you're doing job, make the kingdom first. When you're doing recreation, make the kingdom first. Make the kingdom the center of all the particular things that you do. If you're interested in, in, in looking into more deeply how to do kingdom first when you're doing family, that's what this event on October 27th is all about, this FX Family Experience but we need to learn to bring the kingdom to every area of our life. Think of it this way. The kingdom, for anything to be beautiful, it's got to have a center. I, uh, I, I, it's a little bit like architecture and design. Um, 10, 11 years ago, my wife and I, were, as our kids were getting older, we were realizing that we are orbiting different planets. We're, just very di- we're wired very, very different, and her interests are different than my interests, and we were really not having very many connecting points among other things, and most fundamentally. I just live and breathe theology and philosophy. And that's not really Shelley's primary interest in life. And so I have got this little world of theology and philosophy, but there's just no—we're not intersecting on that point. Shelley is very much into design and fixing things up and, and, you know, making things beautiful. And uh, there isn't a person on the planet that's less environmentally aware and less interested in that than me. I just like design, pretty, whatever. But as you know, in marriage, so we're orbiting different planets. But see, in marriage, we, we've got, to, this is what it's all about. You have to find bridges. You have to find connecting points. A way for me to get inside her world and her to get in my, inside my world. And we have been able to do that. It's really a beautiful marriage and relationship now. But one of the things I learned was this. Here, here's how I did it. I thought, okay, I'm interested in philosophy. She's interested in design. Um, I'll just study the philosophy of design. The philosophy of art, the philosophy of beauty. There's a whole d- dimension of... And so I found a way to get me interested in the things that she was interested. In. And one of the most fundamental things I found was this. There are, to make a living space living, it needs to have a strong center. There needs to be... There's a flow, a flow that a room's supposed to have. When you walk into a room, your eye should gravitate towards the center, and then when you find the center, your eyes should then move out and then notice, you want them to notice the, the, the flower arrangement and then the, the, the windows and then the, uh, the, the portraits or, or whatnot. There's a flow, there's a pattern, there's a rhythm that a room is supposed to have or that a building's supposed to have. But it all hangs upon the center. Uh, until you define what the center of a room is, you can't possibly have a beautiful room. What you'll have are competing centers, various things that are vying for attention, and it's scattered, it's fragmented, it's ugly, like a lot of our lives. Uh, This building here is ugly because it's got no center. Building, please. Look at that ugly building. Everything's the same. There's no center. It's just all a bunch of, but now here's a beautiful building. This is, you may not think it's beautiful, but it is. It's got a strong center. Your eye knows where to go to, and everything is defined by the center. The center of a room and the center of a building is what brings coherence to the whole, right relatedness to the whole. When you find out what the center it is, now you'll be able to find out where the vase should go, where the couch should go, where the television should go. Everything is defined by virtue of the center. And that's the beautiful living room. For our lives to be beautiful, we need to have the center and the center is the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all that you do and everything else is going to fall into place. You see, it'll be beautiful. But it all hangs on us seeking the right relatedness of God first, whether we're doing family, friends, job, or anything else. And finally, I close with this. There is no rule book that can tell you exactly how to do this. There are only principles and there is wisdom and the wisdom comes from God. So ask God for wisdom. Uh, My my life is a work of art and so is yours, but it's not the same work of art. So what is necessary for me is not gonna be what's necessary for you. That's why no one can come up with a stupid rule list that says, you know, watching television for more than two hours a week is wrong. Well, everyone's got a different artwork going on. But we need to ask God for wisdom on how to arrange our room. He is the master designer. And he can look at your chaotic room right now with all these competing centers and and he'll say this, if you'll make me and my right relatedness first, I'll give you the wisdom to know where the couch goes, where the television goes, where the pot should go, where where the portrait should go. And now we get a wisdom to know how to arrange our lives. Ask God sincerely for this wisdom. I'm gonna close in prayer that God give us this wisdom. I want you to know that when we're dismissed, the front of the auditorium is open. If you want to come forward for prayer, I encourage you to do that. Uh, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I encourage you to come up to this table. There'll be a person who would love to explain to you what it is to become a disciple of Jesus Christ and begin to invite the beauty of the kingdom in on your life. Can we close in prayer? Stand up. And Father, we just ask you for this wisdom. We confess that our, our, the rooms of our life to a large degree, are not centered. They're fragmented, they're fractured. We're torn in different directions. We're dismembered like the scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz. But Lord, we're asking you to show us how to reorientate and reframe our lives to make them beautiful so that they reflect the relatedness of the triune God so that our relationship with you and with ourselves and with others and with the creation is manifest the beauty of who you are. But we need your wisdom. We ask for your wisdom. Shine your beauty through us, here and now, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Praise God. The front of the auditorium is open. If you want to come forward for prayer, I encourage you to do this. God bless you. Go out and shine beautifully.